Thank you, worship team, for leading us, as always, and getting, going, getting us started. Uh, it's great to be with you and to worship with you. My name is Ryan. Uh, it is my privilege to serve here as a lead pastor. I love uh, this church and our staff and our leaders and just everyone to be a part of. This is a great place to be. So if you are a guest, allow me to welcome you and thank you for being here. I also want to welcome back the guys who went out deep sea fishing yesterday. We went out. It's, it's such an awesome thing. We got to uh, spend the whole day and uh, came back with lots and lots of huge tuna, around 30 pounds. So, um, you know, find a guy who went, make a friend. Uh, I know in my refrigerator right now, um, not because of me, but because of my son, we have like 100 pounds of ahi. So um, I'm opening up a store in the afternoon if you want to buy some. It's great grade. Um, but yeah, we had a great time yesterday hanging out together. You have it? Oh yeah, we'll show it then. They want to see. There you go. You can kind of see. Yeah, there's the guys out there. It, it, was, a, it was a fun day. Uh, so um, ladies, if, if you had a husband who went, thank you for letting them go. Um, that was the godly thing to do because Jesus was a fisherman. So, um, but we had a great time. You can see a bunch of the fish there. The guys are um, holding up. It was a, a really fun time. But it was really fun just to be together out there and always reminded and to enjoy just the beautiful creation. It's fun when you're, you know, 40 miles out at sea and you're away from everything and you just realize how big the world is and how little we are. Um, and catching some fish doesn't hurt, make it a fun, memorable experience as well. So anyway, that was a great time we had there yesterday. Now we'll transition. <laughs> you guys wanted to just keep looking at that. I get it. Uh, we are in a series uh, called Dear Church. This is our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've been going through this, and this is a letter written to a group of people, to a church filled with people in a city called Corinth. And uh, the kind of quick Reader's Digest version, or even quicker version of where we're at, is Corinth, we believe, is very much like Encinitas today. It was an educated, uh, successful, uh, pluralistic, as far as religious, uh, religiously pluralistic community, so they were spiritual. Uh, and they were, then there was this group of Christians who were trying to figure out, now that we are Christians, how do we live in light of a culture that is not necessarily supporting and promoting this new kind of teaching that we're hearing about Jesus and in, in this new way of living. So how do we live now as Christians in a world that is not necessarily Christian? And so we believe that this has a lot of truth for us today, and that's why we're going through this series. A couple things to remember that are really important uh, of where we are to this point. Paul has used the first four chapters to remind us, to remind Christians of the importance of your identity. We talk about identity all the time here, uh, but because we think it's really foundational, it's important for us to start there. But he keeps saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember that you're in Christ now. Remember that because of what Christ has done on the cross, you have a new identity, and that cannot be taken away. So start with being pointed back to who you are, who you are, who you are. And, and even last week, we looked like, in light of that, this calls us to be stewards and servants of the gospel. And this is, this is your very identity. And the other thing that we see so far is that Paul's talking about, and the wisdom of God sometimes seems like foolishness to the world. That sometimes people might look at what God calls wisdom and say, I don't know if that makes much sense. Paul said, expect that. But don't just expect it, but recognize 
that the wisdom of God, the wisdom of sending Jesus Christ, the very wisdom of the good news, which is Jesus coming and giving his life for us on the cross and being raised again, that this might sound like foolishness, but it's the very thing that has the power to change and transform lives. And not just make you better people, but it's to restore this world that God has created, a world that's meant to have this shalom, which is this completeness, this peace that is broken and distorted. And only the power of the cross, only what Jesus Christ has done and will do in us as he transforms us, can we see this power to transform and change lives and, and heal broken relationships and, and lean in and start to have that beauty and peace and reconciliation that, the, the, that God has created and he's leaning into the world to restore. And it's through the power of the cross and remember that the cross has a power to transform where the wisdom of the world does not have that power. And if you want a case study, just look around. How well is the wisdom of the world bringing healing and unity and peace and wholeness and restoration? And we'll find that it's not doing a very good job. But Paul is saying that because that's all empty attempts and in Christ, there's the power to transform and actually bring life back into the places where life is being destroyed. And so that is a context in which we're reading this letter. It's important that we remember those things because starting today, we start to get into some stuff that you might read. And if we just read it in isolation, we think, man, Paul can be kind of harsh, but if we start there and we forget all the, the setup, then it seems harsh. When we understand the setup and the beauty of the gospel, we start to say, oh, this starts to make sense. So today we're going to dive into that. And before we do, pray with me one more time as we get into the word. God, we thank you so much for today. And I thank you uh, even for the times when we get into stuff that sounds challenging. I thank you that, Lord, you provide answers. And your goal is not to heap burden upon burden upon us and to bring death and destruction, but actually to bring life. So help us be a church who understands that and help us be a church who not just understands it, but fully lives in light of this life that you've given. And Lord, be life-giving people the way we live. So we thank you. We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, as we get there, I was kind of trying to think of how do you start off a sermon like this and what's a good, because uh, Paul's going to deal with some tough issues today. And so I was trying to think of a light way to do it. And, and, and he's going to talk about some sin and judgment and, and being guilty. And I thought, okay, where's a good spot to go? So I got caught in the rabbit hole of YouTube and, and because I was just looking up guilty dog videos. You ever see those videos like when a dog is caught like committing a crime and the parents come home? Any of you people have dogs and you, you've seen this before? If you have cats, you have no idea because cats are just different. They're of the enemy. But um, dogs point us to Christ. So um, but, but you come home and, and, and there's these videos of you come home and there's like a total mess in the house and a dog is just sitting in the middle of it, of the whole kitchen, the garbage is everywhere. And, and at first it's going like, hey, you're home. Until the owner says, who did this? And, and like 90% you know, of, of the time, the dog will just kind of look, look down and like look away like, ah, me? <laughs> Uh, or just saying, like, I don't know if you don't see me. But there's this guilty look. And, yeah, I got in the vortex of all those videos. And one thing that I found that was very common 
that I realized I did a lot as a parent with my own kids when they were young is, that, is the dog's response was so cute that the owner would just start kind of laughing. Like, oh, you're just, and it, what is that teaching the dog? <laughs> but they would just go like, oh, it's, it's so cute. Like, look at you. You know that you just destroyed my new shoes. Oh, this thing. And, and I realized that as a parent, I did that with my kids when they were little too. When they just did something you didn't want them to do, but they did it in such a cute way that you couldn't even discipline them. Anyone there with me? I'm just a bad discipliner. I'll just tell you that anyway. But they would, I, I remember one day where they were in the back seat and one of them, and he was only two years old at the time, was like, you know, hitting his brother because that's what you do. It's in the book. And, and we just said, you can't, it's just stop hitting your brother, which we're the only parents to ever say that. And, um, and, and it was so funny to watch him when he saw our heads turned forward. This little two-year-old would wait and then go, boom. What he didn't know back at that time was that there's rear view mirror, mirrors and <laughs> that they work. But I'd see him do that. And I'm like, that was so sneaky. And so I can't even be mad. Like that was... It just kind of made me laugh. And, and, and you try to discipline, but you're doing it in between laughs. Like, I told you to, I told, just stop, you know. I just was never good at that. So that's my light intro to today. Paul doesn't do that here. Okay, so there, there's the intro. There's the tie. This is, Paul jumps right in. He's talking about an issue here in the church today that he doesn't take lightly. And it's interesting how many times our tendency is to want to take it like things lightly, because it's uncomfortable to be in a place where we want to call stuff out. We want to be the gracious, benevolence, always oh, just love me person. And so it's tough when we get to these passages. But Paul, I believe, gives us a model that we need to think about. But again, when we look at this, remember the context of what leads up to it. And please listen to the whole sermon. You don't stop at one verse when you get to a, a section like this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. If you've never read this, you're, you're curious now, going, what are we going to read today? It's so great. This is actually in the Bible. This is amazing how it starts. Paul says, it is actually reported that there's immorality among you, among you, and he's writing to a church, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who's done this deed would be removed from your midst. You know, sometimes when you're planning a sermon series, you get to something, you go like, let's, let's just skip this. <laughs> let's just go to a different passage. But th- this sounds like, what an interesting start to this section. And, and when you think about it, you think, what is he, what is going on here? And immorality exists, and he's talking to the church, to the Christians, that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. So what he's really calling out, and then he says someone has his father's wife. Now this is a pretty crazy story. It really is. And, and what it probably is, is that it's probably, uh, they believe it's a son and a stepmom situation, the way it's worded. Um, is, this, is his father still in the picture? Is his father, uh, has his father passed? Um, most likely the father probably passed away. But either way, what we have is there's now an intimate relationship between, physical relationship between the son and his stepmom, which according to Jewish tradition would be considered incest. And according to Roman law, it was the same. It's one of the things of morality that the Romans agreed on. And so Paul's actually saying, listen, there's something going on in your church by, and I believe likely one of the prominent members or even a leader in the church. He says, this is so egregious that not even outside the church will you find anyone who approves of it. Yet you guys are just watching this happen. And he says, you're not even mourning it. You're not grieving over this. You're just, you're becoming arrogant about it. 
That's a pretty heavy start to chapter five, isn't it? First four chapters were pretty nice, but that's how he turns. And he says, now for I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, I've already judged him who's committed this as though I were there. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you assembled and I was with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so the spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. You new to the faith? Welcome to church today. <laughs> if this is new to you or something that you're kind of exploring faith and you read this, these aren't, this isn't like a passage I say, hey, you're exploring Christianity. Hey, let's look at 1 Corinthians 5. What a great place to start. Because it's not a place where we start. This is kind of very deep, kind of deeper, intricate types of things of the faith. But this section here should cause all of us to have a little fear, would it not? To Paul to say, hey, yeah, you and I have decided, this guy who's sinning, I'm going to hand him over to Satan that he may be destroyed. That is, yeah, that, that is not one that I think and go, okay, I, I think I would be a little terrified to be a part of this church. But again, let's understand what's really happening in a bigger, um, a bigger call to this. First of all, this sin that he's dealing with directly, and I believe, again, it's a prominent member, and the church in their day was different than ours. For us, our Sunday mornings are a public gathering that is a public gathering where we not only do we um, hope for, but we expect that there are people who do not believe who are here with us. So you might be here with us today. You do not believe in Jesus. Maybe you're here with a friend. Maybe you're exploring the truths. Maybe you've walked away from the faith. You're coming back and kind of figuring this thing out. Uh, you might be, whatever your circumstances are, or you may be brand new to the faith and you're saying, I don't know any of this stuff. We expect that this forum here is one of those where, where that might be you, and you're here with us. I don't believe that's the exact same context in which Paul is talking about. This is a more intimate context in which if someone was in this gathering, or perhaps they're the prominent leader or a member of the church, that, that what their lifestyle was therefore representing that church to the community. And so the way they were living, others would see that person and say, Oh, that's what Seacoast Church is about? You know, here's a, in our culture, we think that that's wrong. We, we think that that's actually, uh, you know, something that no one should be doing. And yet one of their leaders or one of their prominent members is representing the name of Christ and Seacoast and living that way. So it's a little different context than here. We'll talk about what that context is in a moment. But this sin that he's dealing with was giving the message and the, the person of Christ, a bad name to those outside the church. That was the issue, one of the issues. That the way this person was living was causing others to look at Christ and say, is that a picture of what the gospel does in someone's life? Is that a picture of, of what I can expect if I enter into that kind of relationship with God? And Paul's saying, this is not, this is not the life-giving gospel that is preached that I know about Jesus. You see, because the whole point of a life in Christ is not to control our lives. It's not to create a bunch of rules for you to live by. It's that the more and more we become like Christ and live like him, the more we're involved in his life-giving restoration. We're, we're demonstrating the beauty and peace that God brings to this world. It's Partnering with God and the original call for us is to join with him in ruling this earth. And that doesn't mean ruling over others. It's in displaying the beauty of God to others. That is always life-giving, the way we treat people. 
It's re- it restores relationships. It's life-giving. This relationship was not a life-giving relationship. You might say, well, I don't know. What's all the context? Likely the context, there's probably something going on here that had to do with inheritance. There was probably something going on there that maybe was he was being manipulated or even very likely that he was manipulating his stepmother. And there was something there that was a power play but whatever it was, that, and not to mention just the whole act of it was forbidden because this is saying this is a family relationship here. But this was not a life-giving, this was a life-taking relationship. Think of what the siblings involved in this would think. Think of what the other people, how they're being re- uh, affected by this relationship. So you can say when we are outside of God's ultimate plan for us, it doesn't bring life. It's in small ways, it takes life, it takes life, it takes life. And that's what we see going on here amongst the more obvious thing that's going on here. It's a shame to the father and their culture and all kinds of things. But it's stuff that takes and takes and destroys relationships. It doesn't restore them. That is not the picture of the gospel. That's not the picture of Christian living. If we live like Christ, there's always restoration brought to relationships. So Paul's saying, first thing, why we need to deal with the sin is because this sin is giving is miscommunicating the character of God to the world. The other thing that he's dealing with here is that they were not grieving over the sin, but they were arrogant about it. Look in verse six. In verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. In other words, when you got to this situation, instead of actually being affected by it, you were boasting. What were they boasting about? Well, we're gonna see over the next several chapters what they were boasting about, but they were saying, hey, in Jesus, all things are forgiven. So we can live any way we want. It doesn't matter. And you know what? Paul would actually argue that yes, in Christ there is freedom. If your life does not earn your salvation, in other words, the forgiveness of Jesus is given to you because of what he has done, then your life cannot take that away. If your actions can't earn God's favor for salvation, then your actions can't lose God's favor for salvation. So, in essence, yes, all sins can be forgiven. That's what they were banking their lives on. But to the extent where they said, so, since everything is forgiven, everything is permissible. Nothing matters. Because we're forgiven in Christ. However we want to live is fine. And if you really get down to the logic of it all, you could say, yes, when we're relating to salvation, are we saved from our sins? That That is true. But is that the fullness of the life that God has saved us to? Paul would say that's not even who you are anymore. So the issue was that one, there's this sin that was miscommunicating the character of God to the world. And two, that the church was just saying it doesn't matter. Everything's okay. Now, Paul then kind of talks about here how to respond to this person. Now, I'm not going to get into it too much. We did a two-sermon series on this in April of 2018, so about a year and a half ago. In the sermon series, it was How to Judge Others. So we had two weeks on how to judge others, but I'm going to recap a few thoughts because it's important here that Paul is actually judging this person, which we're going to talk about what that means. Uh, It doesn't mean always what we think it means, but there's a way to judge, and he is talking about people who are in that church who are the prominent members there. So here's a few things to think about. How to judge others. The first thing is this. We want to judge others in the context of relationship. Though Paul here seems like he doesn't have a relationship, he says, though I'm not with you, I'm absent, but I'm present in spirit, so I judge this guy. There's actually a basis of relationship here. 
We know that Paul was a part of this church. If this person's a prominent member, he probably knows him and the situation well. This is, and we talked about in the intro, this is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, This is actually the second time he's written to him, so he's already written, probably talked about some of this stuff. So we see that there's probably a relationship here, but he's calling out the church and saying, those of you who have a relationship with this person should have been dealing with it. And so anytime we're going to judge others, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment, it needs to be in the context of relationship. So that is something we would never do in this situation here. We'll never say, hey, everyone who struggles with lust this week, go ahead and stand up. We've got some things to say. We would never, we'd never, this is not a place where there's relationship. And why we want you to be involved in smaller groups, because we want you to be known by others. We want you to be able to speak into other people's lives and have others speak into yours. Now, some of you say, I don't want that <laughs> because I know what's going on in my life. And if that's you, I want to invite you to keep coming, keep hearing the message of Jesus. We're going to keep praying that the Holy Spirit transforms and works in your life. We don't want you to leave because you know you're living in sin. We want you here. This is where you need to be because you're sitting around a bunch of other people who also struggle, just maybe with different issues. But So we never judge others without the context of relationship. The other thing is this. We want to, when we're judging others, and again, listen to the whole sermon so I can tell you what I mean by that. We want to do it with humility and patience. This isn't with the idea that says, you know what? There but by the grace of God go I. I could fall into sin. I have my own issues. I'm not perfect. And when I walk with you, when I talk with you about this, I'm not doing it as from a position of superiority. I'm doing it from a position of, hey, I'm with you. I have my own things. I want to help you with this. I want to walk with you with this. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, that you may also, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, this is a context of relationship with humility and gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. Instead of just saying, hey, you have this issue. If you don't fix this issue, I don't even want to be around you anymore. Notice what this says. Bear one another's burdens. That would say, I see that you struggle with this. Let me walk with you through this season in your life. Let me just walk with you. Let the people around you who love you and care about you, we're going to be praying for you. We're going to be encouraging you. We're going to be walking with you through this. We're going to bear that burden for you. How can we carry you through this season where you're weak? It's very different. And you might say, wait, but Paul just said, hand him over for the destruction of his flesh. I'm going to get to that. (laughs) But when we're dealing with others, we want to do it with relationship. We want to do it with humility and patience. We want to be reminded that we too are in need of a Savior. And the th- third thing there is we're going to do it towards restoration, not destruction. Am I contradicting Paul? No. See, I believe here that when Paul says, I'm going to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, scholars have struggled with this, what it really means. It could mean... He's saying, I'm done with you. I'm going to kick you out of the church and hopefully Satan will kill you and then you'll just make it to heaven but you'll be smelling like smoke. And that's one way to do it. Sounds very encouraging, doesn't it? (laughs) When we really understand how Paul talks, especially so far in the book of 1 Corinthians, he uses flesh 
in the context for Christians of when you're not walking by the Spirit. It's in the context of when he says you are fleshly, you're living in the flesh. It means you're not living in your identity and the Holy Spirit is not living in you. That's when your flesh, your old self starts showing up. And the goal for Paul is that your old self keeps dying to its old self and your new life shines. That you are now living by the whole, walking by the Holy Spirit in your new identity. So Paul's goal is restoration, actually not destruction. You say, well, what about hand him over to Satan? That doesn't sound very kind. Likely, again, what he's talking about is outside of now, no longer are you representing the church. Because this person, and by the way, this is probably not just a one-time thing. This person is hard-hearted saying, I'm not changing. Saying, I'm going to give you now to think of it as the realm of Satan. In other words, I'm going to put you outside of the church. There's this biblical thought that the kingdom of God is here and active, but God has allowed the enemy of God, which in this case Paul calls him Satan, to have some degree of rule and reign in this world. He's not the ultimate authority, but wreaks havoc. And what Paul's saying is, I'm going to hand you over with the goal that you are going to see. You're going to get to the end of yourself. You're going to find that there's no life found in the realm of the enemy of God. And the goal is that you're going to get to the point where the destruction of your flesh or the life that is outside of the Holy Spirit is just going to be pointing you back to this isn't life. This isn't life-giving. This isn't fulfilling me. In other words, I want you to get to the point where you're at that low part where you see that the only hope is to go back to and fall in the grace of Christ. Now, he says it very harshly. I get it. And I don't encourage you to talk to your friends this way. Like, you know what? I'm just handing you over to Satan. So that you get destroyed. But really the heart here is, my goal is that you are restored to being the person that you are called to be. That you live by the spirit, not by the flesh. That this old life that keeps creeping up among you will be gone. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. I have it on the screen for you. This is a letter written later. For though I caught, Paul's writing to the same church, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) Now I rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Many scholars believe that this is the hopeful ending of the story. That this person in this situation was redeemed and turned around. That this person was restored. But notice what Paul said. I'm sorry that it kind of hurt. Sorry that I had to go there. But the goal was that you would turn back to Jesus and that is what produces life. Look at the end of that verse. The sorrow, according to the will of God, produces life. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What does he mean by that? Think of this. When we are pointed back to the cross of Christ, the only thing we can do is say, Lord Jesus, I can't possibly make myself worthy of forgiveness for this one. 
only because of you and your goodness and your greatness, only because of who you are can I have a right standing in you. And so, Lord, now I can only have life from you. But the sorrow of the world is one that is shame and saying, I'm such a lousy person. I can't believe I did this. Somehow I have to make myself right in the eyes of God and earn myself back. And I can never do that because I'm going to fail again and fail again and fail again. And the sorrow of the world produces death. It's something that can never set us free. But when we're pointed back to the cross of Christ, we say, there is freedom because you are so good, Jesus, not because of me. And the idea of God's grace becomes so big that it actually transforms and changes us and brings life, not death. You tracking with me? So what Paul is hoping for is that the church experiences life from Jesus even in their worst sins. David in Psalm chapter 51, was, he was the king of Israel and just got caught committing adultery and having the other guy killed. That shame should produce death. That would say, Lord, I can't believe as a king of Israel I did something so stupid. The burden of earning your way out of that one, I can't imagine. But when God's grace fell on him, and he cried out and said, Be gracious unto me, O God, according to your character, according to who you are. Restore unto me life. The joy of that salvation. Everything that comes from you, restore that to me. There is life when we are pointed back to the cross of Christ. So the goal here in this context of judging others is that we experience life. There's nothing more life-giving than seeing restoration of someone who's failed and fallen. And to walk with them through the process and to see Jesus speak life back into people Instead of having people just being buried under their shame. Now, yes, there was a repentance here. That was the goal. Please don't think. Paul was saying, so it's fine. Do it again. No, he's saying, no, I want you to quit living according to your flesh. That's not who you are. Walk by the Spirit. That's the goal. And it comes when we're pointed back to Jesus time and time again. Some of you may get sick of coming here every Sunday because we keep telling you it's about Jesus and what he has done on your behalf. We're not really sorry about that (laughs) because we think that that is something we need to be reminded of time and again because that is where life is found. So the goal here was restoration. And in the context of judging, I do recommend you look at those, those sermons we did um, in April 2018 that talk about it because there's a difference between this is not a judging for salvation. This is a discernment within the church. This is a discernment between what is right and wrong that he's talking about. So what, where does he go from here? The next, he goes into first pr- proclaiming judgment. Then in six through eight, he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may have it be a new lump, just as you were in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the explanation. What he is saying, this situation is about getting rid of, don't let sin infect and be a part of your community anymore. This symbolism of the Passover was the Israelites were leaving out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and they were being led into freedom. God called them to get rid of all the leaven 
from their bread. Part of it was to make haste because leaven takes time to let the bread rise. But also, if you have leaven in your batch of dough and you're going to bake it later, but you're living out in the desert, you don't have refrigerators, you don't have anything, it's going to spoil the whole batch. So the Israelites were told to get rid of all the leaven on your journey. It's for your own good. It became symbolism in the Jewish faith and now for Christian faith that leaven represented sin. Sin does the same thing as leaven. It infects the whole batch and it will spoil. When the watching world looks at Christians and says, I can't believe that that's how they live, it spoils the batch. I bet some of you in here have wandered from faith at some point because of what a Christian leader has done in their own moral lives. And I bet if you haven't, you know people who say, I can't believe in that faith where there are leaders who behave a certain way. That is a good example of leaven spoiling a batch. Why we should be concerned about it. But that doesn't mean every failure is the end. Because remember, he says, Christ is our Passover lamb. He's the one who was sacrificed for them. In the Passover, they would kill a lamb and dip the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. This is ancient culture. It's, it's not gross to them. <laughs> and they put the, lamb, the blood up there and, it, and the pa- angel of the Lord would pass over their house, giving them a gracious verdict on the house. Merciful. So, The symbolism now is Jesus is our Passover lamb. The blood of Christ on the cross makes it so he'll pass over us. The verdict to us is mercy and grace. He says, now, again, Jesus' work is done. You're new. Don't live in the old way. For the Israelites, don't live as if you're still in slavery in Egypt. It's done. The Passover already happened for Christians. Don't live as if you're still your old self because it's done. In Christ, you are a new creation. Quit living like you're not a new creation. That's what he's saying. That's the explanation why he's talking about this here. He ends with this, with a clarification in this passage. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I didn't at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you to not associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. And he's talking about a specific meal that we'll talk about later, another day. Do do uh, Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are in the outside, God judges. So remove the wicked man from among yourselves. How he ends is the explanation is this. I'm not talking about a judgment of who's in and out of the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about going out in the world and standing in the corner and proclaiming everybody's a sinner. Because guess what? Everybody is. We get it. It's not about Christians saying everyone should live like Christians. Although I do believe if we all lived the God-given identity that he's created us to live, that the world would be better. There's no doubt about that. But the goal of Christians is not to make all the non-Christians in the world act like Christians. The goal is to point people to the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ and to allow the Holy Spirit to transform them into Christ-likeness. And we do that when we live like Christ. When we allow the Holy Spirit to transform and change us and our old selves to die and the new selves to thrive. 
So Paul says, this is not about what happens outside of your community. Outside of your community, I hope that you are salt and light. I hope you know some non-Christians, and I hope when they see you, they say something about you makes things better. Something about the way you live is bringing life to this situation. Something about the way you interact is bringing life to this workplace. Something about the way you are a neighbor brings life to the other neighbors around you. It's not about anyone who doesn't believe. In fact, Jesus wants to redeem and restore everyone in this world. He wants to bring them back into relationship. We need to have those relationships. We need to have those relationships with people hanging out here every Sunday morning. Again, this is our public gathering. And I hope that we all have non-Christian friends who are willing and so bold to sometimes show up here with you on a Sunday morning. And I hope when they come, they hear truth and life given to them and point, they're pointed to Jesus. And I hope that the other Christians in this room give them every reason to believe in Jesus, not every reason to not believe. Because of the way we welcome in and love them unconditionally and, and walk with them in their journey of life. That is what, Paul's not saying don't do that. He's saying do that. But care about what happens in the church. Care about how, what your church is representing. And again, I believe that he's really talking about a prominent member, a leader. It's in the context of relationship. We want you here if you're struggling with sin. We probably will not ask you to teach and be a leader if you're openly wrestling with something and you don't care about it. But we will welcome you to be with us week after week. Because we want you to allow the Holy Spirit of God to show you how big and how great Jesus is and to transform and change your life. That's our goal for you. We're going to end our time here today in a time of communion. I know there's some questions still left unanswered with this, and that's good because we'll we'll dig into that in the weeks to come. I want to look more about how how this plays out. But when we transition to a time of communion, for us, this is about being reminded again of the person of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to invite you to go and to go to one of the tables around the room. And for us, we take a piece of bread, and the bread represents the life and death of Christ, the body of Christ that was broken for you. It means that we believe he actually lived on this world, and that he gave himself up for us, which according to Paul was foolishness according to this world. A foolish thing for God to do is to love us so much that he would give himself up for us. But when we take communion, we're reminded of that truth. And then the juice represents the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb. In his life, in his blood, there was life given to us. It was a promise made. He will pass over us. The judgment is being passed over because of what Christ has done. And when we take that juice, it reminds us that this is a promise made by God to us. That means it's on him, not us. So we're pointed back to who he is every single time. So we're going to invite you. We're going to invite you to go. You can go alone. You can go with whoever you came with today. If you want to go with your life group, 
If you want to take the elements and spread out around the room and pray, if you want to take it back to your seat and pray before you take it, you're welcome. Just let, the, let God move in this place however he needs to. Some of you might want to take a moment to just pray. Some of you might just have, need to have a moment say, God, I feel like I'm that person that needs to be handed over. Before we get to that point, Lord, would you keep working on me and transforming me? Would you forgive me and bring me back to you? Have that moment with God. The goal is not destruction, it's restoration, it's life. And so when we go to these tables, we celebrate life. And today is actually, uh, internationally, there's this thing they're calling Communion Sunday. So many, many churches across the world today are taking today specifically, even those who don't celebrate communion regularly, to, to recognize communion and take it together. And I think that's a, also a cool symbol. It's a symbol that we're not alone. That there are millions, actually there's billions of people who would proclaim the faith. And this morning, many, many are remembering the life and death and resurrection of Jesus with us. So sometimes when we go through this stuff and we look around, it feels like we're the only ones who believe this and it's kind of getting hard. But no, today is a symbol that around the world, you're not alone. And the church of God is not in danger because Jesus is on his throne and he's thriving. And so we celebrate that today together. So pray with me and have a couple songs to take communion at your will. Lord God, we thank you for today. I thank you. Just for the reminder of your truth, Lord, I thank you that you care about our lives within the church. You care so much that you want us to experience life that comes from you, not life apart from you. And so sometimes you point us back to truth. And Lord, thank you for pointing us back to truth. And I pray today, God, that as we get a bigger picture of your grace, that we would see our sin as smaller and smaller and less and less desirable, that we just want more of you. So God, now in this place, when we go and remember what you did on the cross, Lord, let us see our old selves go away and our new lives in Christ be the thing that matters most. So speak to us in this place now in Jesus' name. Amen.